morning. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's lovely to be here. I think this is my fourth time now here, uh, and a joy to be here in the morning for the first time. Uh, lovely to see so many faces as well that I recognise by now. Uh, and if you're not one of those faces that I recognise, lovely to see your face for the first time. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Luke Sherwin. Uh, I work with a charity called Christian Unions Ireland, working alongside the university students. Um, helping the CU groups at universities to flourish and hopefully reach out on their campus sharing the love of Christ. So it's a real honour. Uh, in a month and a day, I'm getting married to the lovely Sophie. Uh, so I'm quite excited about that. Uh, and that's probably all you need to know about me, really, uh, for now. I love Jesus and I love Sophie. So there you go. If I was to ask you the question, have you ever done anything you shouldn't have. I think you would immediately, hopefully, be able to say, yes, yes, I have. But I wonder if I asked you the question, have you ever done anything and then found out that the, the result was bad, but then you did it again anyway? Some of you in the room are like, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> I've done that before. And that could be a whole host of things. Some people have the weird sort of attraction to touch a cactus. I don't know. Like they've touched a cactus and they found it really painful. And then they've been like, actually, let's, that, that wasn't that. And then they touch it again. And, and they realize, oh, no, that's a bad thing. Some of us may have been caught speeding while we're driving. And then you still keep speeding anyway, don't you? And there's things like that that we do in life all the time, but that's not a new concept. That's not a new phenomenon. That's something that's been happening throughout all of time as we know it. And actually this morning, I'm wanting for us to dive into the book of Isaiah again. We're going to have a look at some chapters in Isaiah. And I think Isaiah is such a beautiful book because in the Old Testament, we have a lot of books that are quite hard to read. <laughs> we have a lot of books that are so densely packed with things. You've, uh, the likes of Kings and Samuel, which just have narrative after narrative of things that happened, people that lived and, and what went on. Isaiah gives us this really beautiful zooming in into a specific time in history and looking at how the children of Israel uh, lived and how they got on in relation to the Lord. And so I want to zoom in the lens this morning and read Isaiah chapter 31 and 32. You might immediately uh, react two whole chapters. Yeah, don't worry. 31 is quite short uh, and I think they pair together quite nicely. And so let's read from God's word. I'm reading from the ESV, so uh, if you're reading something else, please try and follow along. Um, and if not, if you want to just sit back and listen, that's also okay. God's word says this. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does, he does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and are not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. 
When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like the birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic declares the Lord of the Lord whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honourable. For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity. To practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease, shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until the spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. And injustice will dwell in the wilderness. And righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will heal when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. 
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the blessing that is the Bible. And I thank you that in it you speak to us directly. And so this morning, Father, I ask that you would speak to us directly through your spirit concerning your son. In his name, amen. The one blessing that you have of me reading two whole chapters is I've taken up way more of my time than if I had have just spoken on four verses. So you don't have to listen to me for as long if you don't want to. So that, that's a good thing potentially for you. But Isaiah, the book in general, can be really hard. Maybe you immediately think of Isaiah 53. Uh, obviously, we've listened to it this morning, so that's uh, a wee bit of a cheat. Maybe you immediately jump to Christmas time. You think of Isaiah 9 and think of those very famous verses. But if those are the only two chapters in Isaiah that you are ever looking at, you're missing out on so much wonderful uh, writing and so many wonderful things that Isaiah writes to us. There's 64 other chapters densely filled with the nitty-gritty of life as a child of God. <clears throat> we find ourselves this morning in the third section of the first half of Isaiah. You can split it up quite a lot, Isaiah, in many different ways. But I would suggest we're coming towards the end of the first half. The first half of Isaiah, looking at the judgment that God is going to bring. Leading and pointing us towards the second half where he shows real hope in the midst of all of it. And so we're going to have a look in this, uh, these two chapters at the rise and the fall of Jerusalem. We're going to look at what was once a city so full of promise becoming a city of ruin. It sounds like it. It's going to be sad. It sounds like it could be intense, and it is. But in it, Isaiah weaves hope. He doesn't leave it all for the second half of the book. Throughout and within, we find hope. And the reason that I, I've, wanted, I, I've decided that we would look at, at two chapters this morning is because I think in these two chapters, we have a, a classic structure of the Old Testament. There's a chiastic structure found here, which basically means that either end bookends what comes into the middle, and the main point is found in the middle. Uh, and so either side gives us wonderful truths about who God is, pointing up into the middle uh, of refreshing reminders and having a pinnacle of some hope that is to come. And so let's dive into the passage. Verses 1 to 5 in chapter 31 are probably a, a really helpful uh, summing up of what the main message in these two chapters is. You could spend comfortably hours just unpacking these five verses at the start. And if you went no further, you would have a decent understanding of what was to come in the rest of chapter 31 and 32. You see... I want us to look at these chapters with three words in mind. And these five verses speak of those three words and then the other sections also do. You see, in each of them we find a problem. Then we find the process that God is using. And ultimately in each we find a promise that God makes. In, chapter, in verses 1 to 5, the problem we see is very clear. 
if you were to read this, you should be shocked at what you read. The very beginning of this chapter suggests to us that the children of Israel, God's chosen people who he led out of slavery in Egypt, are willingly going back. They're willingly choosing to partner with Egypt, a place that had given them such grief, a place that had caused oppression to those people. They're willing to go back in their time of need. How on earth could they do this? Because they're focused on what is going on in their here and now. They're focused on the problem that's at hand. And the problem that's at hand in most of Isaiah is that the Assyrians or the Babylonians are coming to get them. Those two extremely powerful nations are trying to overthrow them and overtake them. And we see throughout most of Isaiah that God is not going to stand in their way because the children of Israel are not following his ways. The children of Israel don't care about God's commands anymore. And so God is going to use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring judgment. And so the result for the children of Israel is thinking, okay, let's partner with Egypt. Let's make this wonderful alliance that will help us because they have loads of chariots and they have loads of horsemen and they have loads of protection. And their problem is that they're forgetting who God is. But we see in these five verses that the process that God uses is stretching out his hand. He stretches out his hand to deal with the wicked. But there's a lot more that we'll unpack together in these chapters. There's a promise here. The promise that we see is not just one of judgment, but it is of hope. If you have a look at at verse 4 and verse 5, we see a promise that God gives when he says, I'm going to be like a lion, a strong, a fierce animal that everyone else is scared of, that everyone else knows is more powerful than them. But he also uses this beautiful image of being like a mother bird as well in verse 5. He wants you to think of these birds hovering in their group, coming back to nest to find the mother bird. Because the promise that God makes in these first five verses is that he is fierce like a lion. And he will overthrow all oppression that they are facing. But he will do so in the most overwhelmingly loving way possible. He will do it with love in his mind. And so let's dive in with that as an overview to the rest of the passage. There's two of these problem, process, promise uh, situations that I'd love us to look at. First, the next problem that we see, I guess, I can't say the first one because we've already seen one. The first problem in this next section is that the children of Israel have deeply revolted in verses 6 to 9 in chapter 31 they have deeply revolted they have not done what they're supposed to do David in uh, Psalm 20 writes very helpfully for us uh, if you want to turn to it um, they kind of 
where the children of Israel, where their mindset should be when it comes to these things. In Psalm 20, verse 7, he says this. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Unfortunately, by the time we get to Isaiah, they seem to have forgotten that truth. They've forgotten that actually above human power and above human wealth, God is the one in whom they trust. He is the one who led them out of Egypt. He is the one who's been with them ever since. And yet now they're turning back and saying, actually, I don't know if this is true for us. Because in their minds, they're seeing Egypt as a potential savior. They're seeing Egypt as the one who can bring them out of their woes. But it's anything but the truth. Egypt here can really be used in all of our lives as well as anything that is making that truth uh, incorrect in our minds. So if there's anything that is taking us away from God and wholehearted devotion to God, anything, be that horses or chariots or whatever, that is taking our eyes off God. And as I was thinking about this, I was asking my own heart this question of, is there anything that takes my eyes off God. And just asking really helps to reveal the truth to me. And, and I'm sure it would to you. And these things aren't always bad things. In this case, the Egyptians uh, weren't necessarily oppressing the, the children of Israel. They weren't doing anything in this specific scenario. This was not necessarily a bad thing. But the reason that it was bad is because their eyes were taken off God. And I was reflecting and thinking, I've been engaged for the last year and a half, and there's times over the last year and a half where just wanting to get to my wedding day and wanting to get to the big event and be married has taken me away from living in the present. And it's made me wish time away. And, and that's probably the case for a lot of you. Maybe there's big events coming up and, and we struggle to live in the here and now because we're so focused on something else. And we, we take our eyes off what God is doing today and we look ahead to the future. Or maybe your work takes your focus away from God. You get so caught up in your day-to-day -day work that you forget to bring it all to God. Or even family. And my wedding and work and family, none of those things are bad. All of those things are a blessing given to us by God in his commands. And yet when we just view them slightly wrong, they're harmful and could be dangerous for us. And so there's a problem here. The people have deeply revolted. And so what's the process that God uses to help them get back on track? Well, the first is that he tells them to melt the idols. They've been turning to idols in their revolt. They've been building up statues. We see a, a wonderful example of that in the Exodus uh, that helps us to understand what they're doing. They build this golden calf and they worship it and say, this is the God that got us out of, wilderness or out of slavery. And you, you read it and you're like, what are you doing? How on earth have you come to that conclusion? But we all think like that so often. And in this case, they've done it again. They've built idols of silver and gold. And God clearly says to them, you need to melt that down. 
But another process that he uses, God in his power in verses 8 and 9 tells us very clearly that the Assyrians are going to fall by the sword. The Assyrians, the oppressors this time, will not survive any longer. But we're told that the Assyrians are going to fall by a sword that doesn't come from man. It's a sword that comes from a different place. We read in 2 Kings 19 what that means. In 2 Kings 19, we encounter a story where God... uh, has the children of Israel in their certain and their current time and place, and the Assyrians are coming and they're they're trying to uh, overthrow them by sword. And at night, as everyone is sleeping, and the angel of the Lord comes and and kills one hundred and eighty five thousand Assyrians in one night. That's what God means when He says through Isaiah that this is not going to be a sword of man. Because the beautiful thing in this process is that we, we love and we worship a God who is so much more powerful than the horses and the chariots that the Egyptians can offer us. So much more incredible than anything that the Egyptians and human force can bring. And God wants in this process for them to realize that. The Egyptians could not kill 185,000 in one night. Only the Almighty God could and it would be very easy for us to then say right well that's the promise that god makes that he's going to overthrow the assyrians but actually there's a more beautiful promise that comes because god often zooms out when we are so caught up in the nitty-gritty and helps us to see a better truth than the one that even we understand today and that better truth is found at the start of chapter 32 this problem that they have of revolting deeply making idols that need melted down and while the Assyrians are going to be overthrown who is coming in to replace him or the Assyrians and it's the king that we find in chapter 32 the way that the king is described in chapter 32 is incredible it's a king that sounds far too good to be true We're not exactly sure who that specific king would have been in this time that he was writing. Some suggest that it was Hezekiah who was coming next, who who did rule as a righteous king and was good for a while. And some suggest maybe it's King Josiah who would come after that, who was a righteous king and was good. But ultimately, regardless of that, this is a messianic portion of scripture. These eight verses point to the best king of all time, the servant who is mentioned throughout the rest of Isaiah, the wonderful servant who would come to serve his people. Listen to some of these truths. The eyes of those who see will not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. Jumping back to verse 2. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind. A shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry place. Like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. There's a great king who's coming. 
for these people. We know he's already come. But there's a great king that Isaiah is talking about who's coming and we all know what it's like to get shelter from the wind. We all know what it's like to be parched and desperate for drink. And this king that comes is going to reign in righteousness, being perfect, being good and being just what we need in our everyday lives. God's new king will make people new. He's pointing us back to chapter 7. This is our new king, Emmanuel, who's coming. And so a city full of fear, terrified of the Assyrians, is now a city full of hope because there's a king coming. As we move on then to the end of chapter 32, let's quickly go through another one of these three uh, phases. In chapters 9 to 14, we see the next problem. I read these verses and I'm like, Isaiah, why are you attacking the women? <laughs> it's, there's some weird verses. I'm like, is Isaiah like anti-women? Is Isaiah just uh, ragging on the women for no reason? And it would be very easy to read that, and we, in our view, could make that the assumption, but no, it's not. Because I wonder, in verses 9 to 14, is there anything that you notice Isaiah say again and again? Is there anything that he is very keen to point out? There's one word that probably stands out more than the others, and that word is complacent. We encounter the women of the, of the time living in Jerusalem who have become complacent. These women are living in the peace of momentary indulgence. Because for them, everything is okay. Things are going well at the moment. They are not being attacked yet by the Assyrians. They, this alliance with Egypt has given them a little bit of peace. Everything seems to be going well in the marketplace. Things are going uh, nicely in the, the fields that bear fruit. For these women, they have become complacent, content in earth's goods. And again, earth's goods are not a bad thing. Like earlier when I was saying about the idols, these things are not necessarily bad, but it's how we view them and the attitude that we take towards them. Because while all of these good things that they're enjoying should point us back to God and his blessing and his providence with us and to us. These women are making it an idol. Because the problem, once again, is that they're making idols. It's repetitive. It's the same thing. And so what's the process that God uses this time? Well, he calls for them to strip everything back. To give it all up. To take away these momentary pleasures and these uh, indulgences that they're experiencing and say, no, these are good, but they're not for now because they're taking my focus away from God. And there's a call for these women to flee escapism. Loving God is not just an escape from something. It's not an escape from all of our worries. It's not just an escape from eternal condemnation. It can't just be that. It has to be so much more than that. 
He's calling them to flee elitism. He's calling them to give to those around, to give to the poor, to those who have nothing. Because we see in the, the chapter before that the, that the evil ones take advantage of the poor. He's calling for them to flee selfishness. He's calling for them to flee materialism. He's calling for these women to strip everything back and put their eyes back on God. And what's the promise that he gives here? Another problem of creating idols, a process of stripping it all back. And the promise that God makes is when that happens, in verses 15 to 18, he will pour out in abundance. Not just goods, not just products, not fruit, not anything material. What he's going to pour out is his very spirit. The spirit's going to come and wash away the complacency of these women. In the wilderness there will be fruit, we see in verse 15. And that fruitful field will grow so enormous that it could be deemed a forest. But just like the promise of this messianic king who's coming, we see incredible truths about what will happen when the spirit comes. It's not just about the fruit. It's not just about the materials, as I've said already. Because in verse 16, justice will be a result. Righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of that righteousness in verse 17 will be peace. And the result of righteousness will also be quietness and trust forever. Because when we strip everything back and we wholeheartedly give ourselves back to God, the outcomes are peace, justice, righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. And God says in verse 18, my people will abide in peaceful habitation, in quiet resting places. The thing is with God, he is not trying to strip away everything to make us miserable. He's not trying to take away all of the good things in life. That wouldn't make any sense because he's the giver of good things. He's the creator of every good thing. So why would he not want us to enjoy it? But he wants us to enjoy it in the right way. He wants us to have a life that is flourishing stripped back, wholeheartedly looking at him and receiving his blessing. And so as I come to the end of these chapters, in the last two verses, we see two things that God is doing. In verses 19 and 20, we ultimately see that God is bringing about change. They don't know it yet, but through Jesus, absolute transformation is coming for the church and for the children of Israel. The children of Israel will be transformed into the church. Those who trust and know Jesus go on to begin the early church in Acts and go on to spread the gospel message across the world. And for them, we read in the New Testament that they are new creations. Everything is completely flipped. We see that the, in these chapters that the noble are becoming the foolish and the foolish are becoming noble. 
Because societal expectations are flipping with Jesus. And for the world, everything is going to change as well. Because God is very clear, there will be judgment for them. For people who turn away from God. From people who don't keep their eyes fully focused on him. But all of this change is worth it. Because it comes with the blessing of knowing and loving God. And the last thing that he is doing in verse 20. Is he's bringing joyful abundance. He's bringing so much that there will be an abundance of water to grow our plants and our seeds and our fruit. So much so that it doesn't matter if the animals are eating it because there's so much. We don't have to separate the people from the ox and we don't have to separate the people from the donkey. Everyone and everything can live in perfect harmony in an abundant land that God is bringing when he makes all things new. See, when our hearts cherish a sense of personal possession in God, we need nothing else. And so in this whistle-stop tour through the two chapters in Isaiah, my hope is that you would stop. You would find the idols in your life. That you would melt them and offer them before God this morning. Ultimately, that you would trust in the King who is good who reigns in righteousness and that you would experience his enriching spirit and through that your life would be transformed now and forever in his name and for his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask that this morning we would be reminded of your wonderful character, that we would know the Prince of Peace, that we would know the Everlasting Father, that we would know the Wonderful Counselor. And Father, may all of our hearts glorify you and exalt you this morning, recognizing that your king who reigns in righteousness came and laid his life down for us. He came to bring justice, to bring peace, to bring trust and to bring rest. And so may we experience that now and forever. And would we take that and share it with the world. Take it with us into our everyday existence. So that ultimately when we get to that last day, when we see joyful abundance of all things you created coming together and worshipping you, that we might see many, many more people in this local area there with us. Be with us and send us out into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.